The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. The 2017 festival runs April 19th through 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, with a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details at festivaloffaiths.org. From Spirituality and Health magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to invite you to join me in Nashville, Tennessee, March 24th to the 26th, for Beyond the Parochial, a weekend seminar celebrating the publication of the World Wisdom Bible, an anthology of perennial teachings from the world's religions. Our mission is to place a free copy of the World Wisdom Bible next to Gideon Bibles wherever they are found. To learn more and to register for the weekend, please visit oneriverfoundation.org. Thanks. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Bastian, filmmaker, author, professor of Buddhism and mindfulness meditation at Antioch University, and president of the Spiritual Paths Foundation. His books include Living Fully, Dying Well, and Mandala, Creating an Authentic Spiritual Path. Dr. Bastian's essay, Find Your Path, appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Ed Bastian, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. Great to be with you. Nice to be with you, Ed. Ed and I talk all the time. I should let our listeners know that we have been friends for decades. I worked for you for 10 years at the Spiritual Paths Foundation, and you are also one of my primary Buddhism teachers, which is why I tolerate the fact that whenever I have an opinion on Buddhism, you tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> so, all that said, let, let's just do a little history. Uh, tell, tell us about your own introduction to Buddhism in 1970 with Lowell Thomas and your interviews with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I was very lucky uh, to have been a member of a film team that went to Nepal and to India to do a television film. And uh, my boss was the, the legendary Lowell Thomas, who had been to Tibet in 1949, one of the few Americans ever to have gone there. And where he met the Dalai Lama when he was 14, and and then the Dalai Lama, of course, had to flee Tibet in 1959. And uh, the and Lowell Thomas one day said, "I think we should go to Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama is now living. I'd love to see him again." So off we went, and it was a very exciting day. And I was part of the film crew, and uh, and after our interview, well, actually during the interview that Lowell Thomas was conducting, he said, "We have with us a young man who's." very interested in Buddhism, and I'm going to ask him to take over this interview. So there I was, suddenly sitting with His Holiness and asking him questions about Buddhism. 
And afterwards, I asked him if I could come and study with him and uh, in Dharamsala, and he said, yes, come back and see me. And so I was very fortunate. It was before His Holiness was an international superstar, and uh, he had time, you know, for the likes of me. And uh, he fixed me. We, we had a number of conversations, and he taught me my first lessons on Buddhism, and then he fixed me up with my first meditation teacher. And, um, and when I left Dharamsala to come back to the States, he recommended that I go to the University of Wisconsin to study with Geshe Lindup Sopa, who be, had become a faculty member at the university. And so I went back and pursued my PhD that I completed with Geshe Sopa, learning t- Sanskrit and Tibetan languages. And, um, and it's just been very much a part of my life. I've chosen not to be a professional Buddhist. Uh, you know, uh, on the circuit, uh, trying to drum up business or teaching in a uh, university uh, full-time. But it's been very important in my life. And uh, I'd say the entry point I made for me into the subject that you and I have worked on so much together, which is the subject of interspirituality, where we're looking deeply at the uh, commonalities between many of the world's great meditative traditions. So just so that people get a sense of how amazing this meeting must have been for you, how, how old were you? 26. Yeah, right. And the Dalai Lama also was not old. Yeah, he was like, I think he's nine years older. So I think he was 30, you know, 35. And uh, yeah, he wow. was just learning English at the time. And so he could practice a bit with me. And uh, so it was quite casual. We had a you know, we were part of it was interpreted. Part of it we was we were just talking back and forth. So why aren't you a professional Buddhist? I think I cared a lot about the subject of Buddhism, and um, and as a personal matter, not just as an academic one. And I found at the time that the academics were making it hard for me to to uh, practice in the sense that when you were working in the university environment. You couldn't be your full self. You had to pretend like you weren't interested in the topic that you were teaching. That you couldn't possibly admit that you were a Buddhist or want to practice Buddhism and still be a credible scholar. Uh, so I think things have changed a bit, but at the time, I preferred just to make it my internal practice and to apply in my profession, in my you know my relationships, and in the rest of my life. So, you know, I taught now and again, taught at the Smithsonian and I've taught here and there, and now again, finally, at this stage of life, teaching at Antioch. So and, you really, you, you're just saying that the, the academic distance you needed from the subject of Buddhism, you, you were too intimate with Buddhism, you were, you were too much of a practitioner. Do you still see yourself that way? I mean, do you, do you identify as a Buddhist? Well, you know, I, I should say that I don't think that my interest, personal interest in Buddhism and practice uh, it stopped me from being a good scholar and from doing a critical analysis of the text and really learning deeply. But I was more interested in Buddhism from the inside out, that is to say, from the perspective of my teachers who had been carrying on this lineage for 2,500 years and trying to understand what they really meant. The academic community wanted you to take a more text-critical approach and to start critiquing you know, the things right. that you were reading without having necessarily even understood them. So I was trying to come from the inside out and try to understand it the way they understood it. And then based on that understanding to uh, to work as a scholar. 
Yeah, my my first introduction to the academic study of, or in graduate school, I was preparing to take uh, to to get a PhD in Buddhism, and the first course I took, the professor said, "Our goal this semester is to determine which day of the week it was on which Buddha was born." <laughs> and I said, "Really? That's what we're going to study? Was it a Tuesday or a Wednesday?" And he says, "Yeah, we're going to try to figure it out." And I said, "I'm going to try to change my major." And that was the end of my Buddhist studies career. So you mentioned earlier this notion of interspirituality. How, how do you understand that term? Well, let me, I, as we get into that, I, the thing, one of the things that interested me when I was doing Buddhism, because I had helped to start a progressive elementary school when I was younger, uh, that was really focusing on the learning styles of the, of the kids. So that what I was teachers was to help them teach the way in which they naturally learn, not a one-size-fits-all approach to education, which, you know, leads out a huge number of students. So I began to see that same thing in Buddhism. And as one does sort of a text-critical analysis of the Buddhist scriptures, you see that the Buddha was teaching to different types of people in each of these different sermons. So in the actual sutras or the scriptures, they would say, the Buddha was teaching to so and so, and so and so was a so you know such and such. So you begin to get a sense that he was he was altering his teaching style based on the learning styles, or the spiritual styles or predispositions of the people that he was teaching. So that that kind of confirmed to me that the way to teach not only just regular subjects but also the way to teach religion and Buddhism was first to help the student identify who they are how they know, and then teach them accordingly. Ask them how they know. What are your questions? And they can tell you. And then that provides you the starting point, rather than trying to cram down a rigid curriculum down their throat without knowing who you're teaching. So that really served me for our work with interspirituality, because I found that within all the world's traditions, that similar paradigm was there, even though it wasn't explicit in the traditions, but each of the major traditions are huge tents for all kinds of learners. But what happened was, like in public education and in our manufacturing industries, you want to put everybody into an assembly line, make them all the same, turn them out exactly the same. And of course, that leaves out, you know, arguably 90% of the people that you have. So I thought the way to correct that then was to apply this learning style approach and to look. Um, and what we could do to really help people develop a path, a spiritual path, no matter what they called it, whether they wanted to see themselves as Buddhist or Christian, or they wanted to borrow wisdom from a variety of traditions and make it into their own. And, and that's really where your, your whole idea of the mandala comes in. And your essay in Spirituality and Health magazine, the, in the current issue, Find Your Path, I mean, that's what you're talking about. Before you choose, and I'm, I'm, this is a question, though it sounds like a statement, before you choose a religion necessarily, you're, you're saying, first you have to know how you know things. And when you know your spiritual learning style, then you can uh, work with your strength and investigate whatever tradition you want to investigate. And you can help people do that without, without going into terrible detail and we get lost. How, how does the mandala work? How do you help people learn their spiritual learning style? Well, you know, this becomes an intuitive process of teaching because you, when you approach somebody, you're more interested in who they are than what you have to tell them. 
So uh, you just naturally try to draw out of them. Are they more kinesthetic as a learner? Are they more intellectual? Are they more mystical? Are they more into nature? Are they more into devotion? So there are 12 of these kind of uh, families of spiritual styles. And then you help them to identify where they're coming from, where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are. These are archetypal styles that all human beings have. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So you want all of these styles within our consciousness to be working together so that somebody can really be on a spiritual path. So we begin with that. I created an instrument, a psychological instrument, so to speak, to help people to do that. And then the second part is, what's your question? You know, what is God? What happens when I die? Why am I here? What, how can I be happy? You know, why do I suffer? So we begin with who we are. We ask our question, and then we ask them of one or more of the great spiritual traditions. And then in a more systematic way, we begin to pull together our own path our own religion, so to speak, using a systematic method for doing it. So, so let's see if you can give me a concrete example. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take, um, a, 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 you know, one of these archetypal patterns that is definitely not me. So let's say nature, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I learned through nature. I'm making this up, obviously. Um, so, and I want to know about about Buddhism or or Christianity or you know. Catholicism. How, how do I apply my questions? What's the nature of God, for example, uh, and and explore that question through my learning style or my my spiritual style of nature? Well, many people who who are nature oriented express already something profound that happens to them experientially by being in nature. So they'll love the quietude. Uh, they will feel a certain level of inspiration. They love sitting and feeling the wind on their cheeks, the sun warming them. They like they see the birds fly. There's there's some sort of interconnectedness that happens to them when they're in a natural setting, and that puts them then in touch with something that is deeper. They could say which is sacred or the divine that they that they intuit that they feel naturally by being in nature. So that becomes that becomes then a starting point, and it becomes a natural path for them into, you say, the question of God: What is God, and uh, or is there a God, or how do I define it? And so, you then make the connection. You connect the dots between the experience in nature uh, with the question that they have, and then they can begin looking to see. Okay, well, I grew up, say, as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. Then they can start looking into their own tradition. And they say, well, what did St. Francis say about nature? How did that connect him with God? Or how did, you know, uh, Rumi connect with nature? Or how did Ramakrishna connect with nature? Or how did, you know, so you help them then reconnect and to find things in their tradition or in a variety of traditions that really mean something to them, because it approaches how they learn, who they are, 
and the questions that they have at this point in their life. Yeah, it's really fascinating because what you're, I think the approach of most religions is here's the box, you need to fit inside of it. And you're saying, no, here's who I am, or here's who the, the seeker is. Now let the religion speak to who that person is, as opposed to forcing that person to be perhaps someone they're not uh, by fitting into the whatever the generic box of Judaism or Islam or Christianity happens to be. And it makes it really highly personal. And yet, because, and this is the question, because there are so many people with the same orientation, nature, art, whatever it happens to be. Do you find that people build community by, oh, I don't know, you know, finding friend or, you know, building friendships with others who are nature oriented rather than, oh, I, I hang out with other Christians or I hang out with other Muslims. No, I hang out with other na nature people and it, the religions that we integrate into our archetype or, or however you want to put that. Uh, it's the archetype that binds us together as a community. Yeah, and you could be doing it across traditions. So if you're, you know, as a Jew, me as a Buddhist, somebody as a Christian, somebody as a Hindu, somebody as a Native American, all these traditions, if you all have that learning style in common, then you're automatically connected to each other. And then you begin to see the similarities that exist in your in the perceptions of the, of the sacred, of the divine, of some truth, transcendent reality because you're sharing a way of approaching it, no matter what your tradition is. So then you form a natural affinity with each other and connection with each other that you might never have done otherwise. Yeah, that's that's the brilliance of it, because it, it takes away the competition between the religious systems and uh, focuses instead on the on the shared learning style. So so let me, let me just shift gears for a little bit, because this is spelled out in your book, Mandala, creating an authentic spiritual path. And uh, actually, before I even go into that, there's a website where they can actually do a lot of this online. Give us the website. Well, we're, we're going to start a course uh, 1st of February. And it's using, it's, it's at the, the, the URL is interspiritualmeditation.org. Interspiritualmeditation.org. And so this is the next part. This is, now let's create a contemplative practice that is aligned with my style. So a lot of people feel like they can't meditate because they have some sort of stereotypic idea about meditation. You know, you have to sit in a room, you have to sit cross-legged on a pillow, you have to this, you have to that, you have to chant Om. And they're saying, that's not me. I'm a kinesthetic person. I'm a nature person. I'm just, I can't sit there. So... Uh, this this seven-step meditation process begins with who you are and helps you to craft a contemplative practice using these seven steps where you can really build for yourself a uh, mature and a sustainable meditation that fits who you are and allows you then to bring in the wisdom and truth from the tradition that, you're, that you most love or from the variety of traditions that you've studied and you want to bring the wisdom and practices from a variety of traditions into one uh, succinct, uh, holistic practice for yourself. So, so when you say, in, I guess even in the title of Mandala, Creating an Authentic Spiritual Path, the word authentic here is, is from the point of view of the practitioner, it seems to me, rather than the point of view of the tradition itself. That what makes a, and this is a question, it sounds to me like what you're saying is what makes a path authentic 
is that it's true to you as opposed to true to some institutional understanding of a specific faith? No, I think I think it's it's both, you know, and if it's not authentic to you, you're not going to do it. You may parrot it, you may try to do it, but it's just not going to work and you're it's going to be sort of breed a kind of dysfunctionality. So you want it to be authentic to you, but you want to also have it to be authentic from the perspective of the tradition or the teacher that you're whose teachings you revere. So it's authentic in two ways. You are and and as a mentor in this process, there are people who are studying with me to become interspiritual mentors that are learning to do this. Our job as a mentor is to help you, based on your authentic styles and your ways of approaching it, find authentic sources and teachers to bring into your practice. So it's it's authentic in, in two ways. And people can learn where can they go to learn how to be a mentor? Well, if we go now to this interspiritualmeditation.org, and that's the name of the second book, which is Interspiritual Meditation, then uh, that's kind of the beginning point, uh, the course that we're going to be doing in a couple, in a, what, almost a, in 10 days, uh, will help them along that path. So we have a process where we do two courses, one on interspiritual meditation, one on the mandala process, then a course on integrating those. And then we begin a mentoring process where people work with me, work with each other as a cohort, and their own mentees, people that they'll work with on the side, and apply this method, this process of interspiritual meditation and the mandala process. So they get good at doing it. They work together. I help them. And then after about a two-year program, they become a certified interspiritual mentor with this process. And... Then they're off on their own doing it in conjunction with their work as a psychologist, as a healthcare professional, as a spiritual director, as a yoga teacher, as a chaplain, or whatever it might be. But you can marry this process with that which you do professionally and the relationships that you have in your life. So it's an integrative process, not an exclusive one. Wow. And I, I've had experience with this, uh, talking really to our listeners rather than to you directly. I'd have had experience with this. It's an amazing program. So I, I urge people to check it out. It's really quite fascinating. And that really is all the time we've got, Ed. Uh, my guest today was Dr. Ed Bastian. He's the author of Mandala, Creating an Authentic Spiritual Path. His essay, Find Your Path, appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about his work at interspiritualmeditation.org. Ed, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. It was fun. Support for today's broadcast comes from the Festival of Faiths, an interfaith celebration of music, poetry, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders. The 2017 festival runs from April 19th to the 24th in Louisville, Kentucky, and features a talk by the Dalai Lama. Details for the Festival of Faith are available at festivaloffaiths.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.